back to The Word is Resistance, a podcast exploring what our sacred text has to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, in liberation? My name is Blythe Barnum. And this podcast is a project of Surge Faith. This podcast is designed to be a resource for white people who are realizing that to be Christian in this time and in this country means listening to, learning from, and joining in with the struggle against racism and white supremacy. We'd love to hear your thoughts and to hear a little about how you're responding to this world. We also welcome your feedback and especially appreciate feedback and accountability from listeners of color. The music you've just heard is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding, We Are Building Up a New World. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014 and is being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We're deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for the podcast. I'm back for my second episode with The Word is Resistance, and I'm thrilled. By means of introduction, I'm a queer white femme who was raised working class in Ohio and now lives on the occupied Ohlone land known as Oakland, California. I'm a writer, preacher, community organizer, and minister. I learned what I know about the sacred from harm reductionists, survivors, sex workers, and working class grandmas, my community. You can learn more about me at feminary.wordpress.com. this week is from Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 to 20. Here's the reading from the message translation. If a fellow believer hurts you, go and tell them. Work it out between the two of you. If they listen, you've made a friend. If they won't listen, take one or two others along so that the presence of witnesses will keep things honest and try again. If they still won't listen, tell the church. If they won't listen to the church, well, you'll have to start over from scratch. Confront them with the need for accountability and offer God's forgiving love. Take this most seriously. What you say to one another is eternal. I mean this. When two of you get together on anything at all on earth and make a prayer of it, God goes into action. For where two or three are gathered... I am there among them.
recording this week's podcast at my desk in Oakland, California. I just got back from spending six weeks in Ohio with my family. And I have to say, the transition back to my Bay Area bubble has been a bit jarring. (laughs) I'd reacclimated to the grit and the space of Ohio. I mean, logistically, life is much simpler there. You can go to the grocery store, pick something up, and drive home, all in 15 minutes. I mean, maybe that doesn't sound like a big deal to you. Maybe where you live, it's the same way. But let me tell you, after living in the Bay for 10 years, this feels like some sort of blissful magic to me. It's incredible. Emotionally, Ohio requires some work for me. I'm regularly around folks with different political opinions and perspectives, or even if we share some beliefs, our ideas about how to actualize the world we want are often very different. It takes some maneuvering, some translating, some reimagining that I just don't have to do here in Oakland. I was in Ohio when Charlottesville happened, and I had to do some real reckoning with the white supremacy in my home state. Many of the white nationalists involved in physically brutal experiences that weekend were from Ohio, including James Alex Fields Jr., the man who drove his car into the crowd. I've lived in the Bay Area for a decade now, so it's been a long time since I was home while a highly publicized tragedy like this was happening. I've grown accustomed to the rhythm of response in Oakland. I know that after an event like Charlottesville, the community will gather at Oscar Grant Plaza at 5 p.m. It requires very little from me. I don't have to organize it. I just have to show up. It's not the same in my town in Ohio. There's no gathering place like that. There aren't others I can rely on to organize something. There was no visible or communal response that I could see. And while my family shared my horror about a violent gathering of white supremacists, they seemed quick to move on. They expressed their disapproval, their disgust, they shook their heads, and then they changed the subject, talking about my sister's soccer tournament and other mundane things. And if I'm honest, it made me angry at them. Angry that their horror didn't seem to propel them towards any sort of action. Angry that they could move on so quickly. Angry that they couldn't recognize their own complacency. I was angry and I was also a little hurt. I was hurt by their lack of investment. It made me feel lonely. It made me feel separate and sad. It added to a feeling of helplessness that was already crashing in on me. I was disappointed in them. And we know that disappointment is no small thing. Otherwise, it wouldn't hurt so badly when people we respect say, I'm not angry at you. I'm just disappointed. Oof. Awful. I've come to believe that disappointment is a form of grief. Something has been lost. A plan, a perspective, a hope. I was grieving my hope that my family and I could have a shared perspective. I was grieving my hope that my family would stand up and do the right thing when the time came. That even if they voted Republican, deep down we believed the same thing about the value of human life, justice, and the horrific immorality of racism. 
but disappointment isn't despair. And the grief it brings does not often last for long, nor does it really offer us the full picture. It's simply a clash between desire and reality. I wanted my family to be different than they were. I wanted them to respond differently. They didn't. I was disappointed. I tried to speak with my family one-on-one, and I had some success, as long as I kept my voice completely calm, as long as my words felt emotionally neutral. I noticed that my family would check out if my voice shook with anger or restraint or sadness. I would tear up, and they would tune out. So, I gave up. I retreated into my disappointment. I went to my room and didn't come out for a full 24 hours. I sat in there, brooding, reading articles, making memes. I thought about this when reading today's scripture. For me, this scripture is a call to persistence. If one thing doesn't work, try another, then try another, and another. And if that doesn't work, well, start all over again. Jesus is offering us strategies for difficult conversations. He suggests starting with one-on-ones. And you know what? If we're honest, most of us would rather eat dirt. We avoid conflict. Or more to the point, we avoid vulnerability. We'd rather try to snark someone into change. Too often we rely on passive aggression, assuming that if people don't get the message, well, then they're just never gonna. But in reality, we never really delivered the message. We sidestepped it. We posted a meme that said, ever wonder what you do in Nazi Germany? Chances are you're doing it now. When what we mean to say is, hey, the times we're living in are serious, just as serious as other horrific moments in history. We should make sure we're behaving accordingly. I'm not sure I am. I'm not sure you are. Let's talk about it. Because, I mean, if we take that meme seriously, then what we would have been doing in other moments of resistance is sending snide messages to folks criticizing them for inaction while remaining inactive ourselves. Like my grandma says, when you point a finger at someone, you got three pointing right back at you. Now don't get me wrong. I know that first step is a doozy. One-on-one conversations are hard, and there are a lot of reasons that we skip them. Perhaps the most common is believing or feeling like our vulnerability isn't safe with the person we're speaking to. I get it. I've been there. And I call bullshit. I mean, just a little bit. Because as white folks, we're so often insulated from discomfort, so much so that we often conflate discomfort and danger challenge feels like a threat. It's an issue of self-worth that's rooted in white supremacy. It's a subconscious but powerful belief that we're always right. In fact, our worth is rooted in being more right than anyone else. So without a healthy, grounded sense of self, critique or disagreement can feel like a challenge to our personhood, our very existence, when really it's just an exploration of our thinking. I suspect that the moments in which we are truly unsafe 
are far fewer than we believe, which doesn't necessarily mean much right out of the gate, but it can be a call to practice discomfort, to build muscle towards having difficult conversations. And just to be clear, I'm offering these reminders to myself just as much as I am offering them to you, sweet listener. After all, I retreated into my teenage bedroom and made memes. And to be honest, it's not immediately clear to me whether my retreat was justified or not. It's something I need to keep thinking about. I mean, my family has not always been safe for me, and we're still working to repair serious and very real harm that's happened in the past. Things feel tenuous, but perhaps there's more room than I realize. Like I said, I have to keep thinking about it. Perhaps that's where the persistence comes in. We are I found myself wondering what it was that I wanted from my family. There were obvious answers. I wanted them to be outraged by white supremacy. I wanted them to commit to looking at how they benefited from white supremacy and how they perpetuate it. Those were the surface answers, the easy answers, the right answers. But when I dug deeper, there were others waiting. Answers that made me question my altruism. Because what I also wanted was for my family to be safer than they were for friends and loved ones. I wanted them to live up to my expectations of them. But more than that, even deeper, I wanted them to be willing to respond when they knew someone was being hurt. It's a desire born from my experience of domestic and sexual violence as a child, which their denial, conflict avoidance, and shame allowed to continue. While it was not the only thing, one of the roots of my frustration was a desire for their protection. I wanted a sort of loyalty that I had witnessed and experienced from others, but not from my blood family. For a moment, I thought these feelings, these desires, negated my intention to support people of color, immigrants, and folks who were Jewish. But it's far more complicated than that. Because what I've learned about white supremacy has convinced me that the man that beat me as a child did so because of the same sort of white fragility that led Daniel Patrick Borden to beat DeAndre Harris in a parking garage. Our liberation is bound together in complicated and unspeakable ways. In that moment, I couldn't engage my family, but I could write an open letter to my fellow Ohioans. And because I understood the value of loyalty in working class community, I also, and I also deeply longed for it myself, I ended the letter with these words. Racism and white supremacy are alive in our state. We know it. We must stop pretending we don't. We must take action against white supremacy. Our Midwestern manners have no place in this moment. Instead, I pray that we respond like we do when someone we love is hurt, 
with that fierce sort of loyalty, power, and compassion that I love about us, with love that is loud and unrestrained, a love that echoes through hearts and streets. Believe me when I tell you that someone you love is hurting. Someone you love is black, Jewish, gay, Muslim, or an immigrant. Someone you love is waiting for your loyalty in the face of yesterday's horror. Do not wait to give it to them. Tell the truth about the racism in our state. Take action against white supremacy. seemed to resonate with folks. People liked it and shared it and commented. I asked folks in town if they wanted to get together and do something. I suggested simply holding signs at one of the main intersections of town. And to my surprise, most of them said yes. I invited them over the next day to make signs. I invited my family also, but most of them declined my invitation to participate and stand out there with us. But my mom came and helped to color in the sign that read, Ohio Against White Supremacy. And my grandma put out a plate of cookies and some water. And my extremely, extremely introverted teenage brother came and stood with us. Each of them moved a little. And so did I. I moved from disappointment to action. I tried another tactic and it ended with eight of us standing on a corner in my smallish Ohio town, publicly saying no to white supremacy. It may sound small, but I assure you, that's the largest anti-racist demonstration that town has ever seen. In fact, two of the folks that came that day asked me if they might be arrested. They'd never been to a protest before. I told them that considering that we knew the chief of police in town, I felt confident that we wouldn't be, and I sort of chuckled. But then I realized that they thought they might be arrested, and they showed up anyway. White supremacy is alive in my town, and just like it is in every town in this country, and we weren't sure how people would respond. But overwhelmingly, people honked and waved their support. Older men and pickups gave us the thumbs up. Three different people pulled over to thank us for standing up and bought us water for the heat. We became the visible and communal response. And instead of being met with anger, we were met with white people's deep hunger for a way to respond to white supremacy. We have many strategies at our disposal. If one doesn't work, try another and then another. In continuing to try, we build new muscles. We learn. We grow. Gentle persistence, a persistence rooted in holy love, in healing, and not just in productivity, brings new strength, insight, and determination, so that when we return to the beginning, we're able to yield new results. These days, 
They require the persistence of our resistance. We are call to action, you're invited to use an ancient spiritual practice in a new way, Lectio Divina. Lectio Divina allows us to go deeper into scripture, so how might we use it to also go deeper into our own lives? Spend 10 minutes writing and journaling about how white supremacy affects your community. What do you know about your community? What do they struggle with? How is that struggle connected to white supremacy? Where can you go deeper? What is your community value? How can those values be engaged in the struggle against white supremacy? When 10 minutes is up, spend some time getting centered. Focus on your breath or listen for a word that calls to your heart and repeat it. Then go back and read what you've written. Go slow, word by word. Listen for that still, small voice. Circle words and phrases that call to you. Then choose one, memorize it, and pray it by repeating it over and over again to yourself. Sit with it, go deeper. Take time to rest in God's presence as you hold these words in your heart. What is God revealing to you about them? What is God helping you understand? Speak to God using these words or any others. Then slowly follow your breath back. Spend another 10 minutes journaling about the experience. How did it feel? Has anything become clear? What's your heart's wisdom? When we share our healing, we offer resonance to others. We offer a way in. We offer connections that can propel people forward. What vulnerability can you lean into? What truths can you tell? How can you turn that vulnerability, that truth, into a tool for liberation? Courage, sisters, don't get today. As always, you can find a transcript of this week's podcast on our website. Let us know what you think by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. Next week, the the wonderful Reverend Ann Dunlap will be returning to discuss the lectionary text for September 17th. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org. And to find our podcast again, simply search for The Word is Resistance on SoundCloud or iTunes. Until next time, may you go forward in the peace and power of the God who loves us for all that we are and in spite of nothing. 
the same God that calls us to the work of justice. I shine, you